0: Welcome to Jersey Justice, a civil law podcast that shares practical tips and stories about personal and workplace injuries. Join two of the brightest New Jersey injury attorneys, Gerald Clark and Mark Morris of Clark Law Firm, as they take you behind the scenes of justice and civil law. But first, a quick disclaimer the information shared on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this site should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and does not constitute an attorney client relationship. All right, everyone, welcome back to Jersey Justice. And I am here with Mark, and we're going to be talking about jury verdicts and awards today. And I think this is a topic that would be particularly interesting to our audience because I know people always wonder, well, how is a verdict determined? How does the jury come to an agreement? And how is everything calculated in terms of what they're getting based on their type of injuries, the evidence and all of the things involved? So welcome, Mark, what can you tell us about jury verdicts in New Jersey?
1: Sure, thanks, Dimple. So a lot of times first to get to a jury verdict, where we're talking about something like damages is if liability is an issue, and by liability, I mean, who's at fault? Give the example of of a car crash, say someone ran a red light, and there's a dispute did the defendant, the person who's getting sued run the red light, or did the plaintiff, the person who's bringing the lawsuit run the red light? So question number one would be, has plaintiff proven by a preponderance of the evidence? And the word is preponderance of the evidence, which is 51%, or it's like 50.00001%. It's not like you see in criminal, cases where it's beyond a reasonable doubt, which is I don't know the percentage for that one because I don't need to, we don't, do a, we don't do criminal. But jurors, that's something that we always make clear is preponderance of the evidence. Is it more likely than not? Is it probable? So question number one would be if liabilities in dispute is is it more likely than not? Or has plaintiff proven by a preponderance of the evidence that defendant was negligent? And if we get past that question, and question number two would be: Has defendant shown by preponderance of the evidence that the plaintiff was negligent? Say there was a, a dispute that the plaintiff did something wrong. Almost always, it's the plaintiff's burden of proof. But if defendant's trying to show that the plaintiff was negligent, they would need to prove that element of the case. If that makes sense, and so if the plaintiff is is fifty percent or less at fault, then they get a recovery. That recovery just would be discounted by whatever percentage of fault is assigned to them, if if it's assigned at all. I know that this is like fascinating stuff talking about how percentages get assigned for liability or what. But if we get past all that, and then we're into the damages question, usually what it's going to say is it's going to be a line item. And it'll say what amount of money will fairly compensate plaintiff for their harms and losses in this case. And sometimes we'll get to delineate out or like space out the pain, the suffering, loss of enjoyment of life. And it's, it's kind of wild. I, I know we've said this in the past or I've, I've talked about it, but in New Jersey, in a lot of states you can, but in New Jersey, you can't suggest a number to the jury. So I can't be like, ladies and gentlemen, my client was catastrophically injured, award her, you know, $5 million. Can't do that. Like I would just basically have to present the case and then leave it up to the jury to come up with an idea on value. And there is something, it's called a time unit analysis which I think New Jersey is kind of unique for having that. Maybe some other states do, but because we can't say, Hey, this case is worth $5 million. I, I could do this time unit analysis, which is almost like a mathematical formula. And it's the only formula that's recognized. It's in the jury instructions. I'm not positive. There's a court rule on it. I, I believe that there is, but we need to say from the beginning of the case, we need to let the beginning of the trial that we're going to use this time unit analysis and what it is is typically we would say something like, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not allowed to tell you a number in a case like this, but what you can do to come up with your verdict is take one hour of this person's life. Is it the, the morning when they wake up and they, they can't walk down the stairs because their ankle's in so much pain? Is it the, the kid's birthday party at the bowling alley and they're not able to bowl because they can't stand on their feet for too long? Is it 30 years from now when they're 70 something years old and their ankle is, is giving them issues? what's one hour of this person's life worth? Take any one of those hours and then it just becomes a math a math formula. Take that one hour, there's 24 hours in a day, 365 days in a year. This person has, say they have 50 years left in their life. And once you come up with what that one hour is worth, you've reached your verdict. It's just about them plugging the numbers in. And the idea is with that, which is a fair system, but the idea is with that, if you actually isolate out each and every hour of someone's life who's gotten catastrophic, catastrophically injured, like many of our clients have, that's going to come out to a fair and, and just verdict. The defense is going to think it's going to be some huge number, but it's going to be a verdict that's designed to fairly compensate for someone for what they've what they've been through. So it's kind of wonky that I'd love if, because we're kind of the experts, like clients will always ask, hey, what's my case worth? And by the end of the case, you kind of have a good idea on, on value haven't done this for a while and just collectively too. a lot of us here will talk through cases and look at different databases to have an idea of value so i might know how much and i just use the example of an ankle injury so i might know how much an ankle injury with with surgery is worth but i can't stand there and tell that number to the jury when we're on trial so it's really up to the jurors collective wisdom to come up with that number at least when it comes to pain suffering loss of enjoyment of life if there's objective Things, say there's past lost wages, future lost wages, unpaid medical bills, future medical bills, that the jury can hear about, like they can get those concrete numbers. But the idea is that if you're looking at a pie chart of damages, that one little slice would be for, for wages, past wages, future wages, another tiny slice would be for medical bills. And then the big portion of the, the pie chart would be the pain, the suffering, loss of enjoyment of life because the idea is with things like pain and suffering, like how do you put a dollar figure on that? And I just think like, I, I had the flu like uh, a week ago. And if someone was like, I'll give you a thousand dollars a day or $5,000 a day to, to be holed up in bed with a hundred something degree fever, I'd be like, no way it's miserable. And that's the flu. I know you joke about like the man cold or whatever. Like I was, I was, it was kicking my butt. And we're talking about the flu, everybody gets the flu at some stage in their life. If then you want to extrapolate that out and say someone's had major surgery on a body part, or they like the the fusion in their neck or their back or like ankle, wrist, whatever, like and they have pain from that to a certain degree every single day of their life for the rest of their life, like how the heck do you put a value on what that pain and suffering is worth? Because the idea is that when we're talking about someone's pain and suffering, their loss of enjoyment of life, if you've had a major surgery, a lot of doctors people will tell you it's not going to get better as time goes on it might stay the same but it, more likely than not the progression of these injuries is it's going to get worse so we always kind of like to let jurors know and remind them that they're not just giving an award for for that day they're not just giving an award for what that person's been through it's supposed to compensate them for the rest of their life which is a tough thing to do i don't have a crystal ball no one has a crystal ball that's why it goes back to that standard of preponderance of the evidence. Is this person's injury going to get better over time? Probably not. Could it maybe, but that's not the standard. It's, it's probably, is it going to get worse or stay the same? Probably is much more likely than, than not it is. So the idea with verdicts is it's supposed to be just compensation. It's supposed to be fair. I I think one of the things you ask, like, how does a jury come up with, with a verdict, that's why we talk about the cross-section of the community. Everyone's collective wisdom. You might have teachers, engineers. I had a jury one time where the the four person was a giraffe trainer. A giraffe um, trainer. Giraffe trainer. We have a, a theme park like near us, and you just a lot of times, like we've talked about, it's people who are retired, but you do get some interesting professions on there, and that was by far the most interesting one. But so you get this kind of fair cross section of the community where one person might have an idea on 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 money, like. This is a lot of money. Someone else might have a different idea. This is a lot of money. And the idea is they deliberate. Like it's jury deliberations where everybody's supposed to talk and have their voice heard. And they come up with a number that it's all we can do. And if I had a crystal ball and could tell you, hey, this case is going to come back with a jury verdict of, of this, I'd be on a beach somewhere. I don't know, doing consultations, but that's, there's not, no one knows. That's why so many of these cases settle. That's why 98 probably plus percent of cases resolved is because juries are very unpredictable. They could come back and award a lot of money in a case where, you know, potentially the case could have settled for not as much money, or they could come back and award $0 or, or very little money in a case where it seems like the person was really hurt and they deserved a lot more money than that. So it's really just trying to get fairness in, in an inherently unfair system as, as kind of, I guess, dour as that sounds, but it just is what it is. and I like I've said, like I, I've been impressed with with jurors' attentions, their their attentiveness, and at the end of the day, you just you just hope that they get it right and you try and put on the best best case that you can,
0: yeah, thanks for sharing that. And what's interesting about that is that when it comes to so now it makes me think, okay, there's a jury, right? as lawyers, you have resources, you have experience, right you have an idea of what these things settled for in the past based on an ankle injury or versus someone who had a spinal back injury, different types of injuries. As far as the jury goes, to come up with a number even, and they're deliberating, where are they getting their research for, from or information? Are they able to research past cases and settlements? Is that provided to them? Is it on their own? Or are they just simply having conversations?
1: So it's a big no-no to do any outside research when you're a juror. The judge will explain to you, hey, don't talk about the case until all the evidence is in, and then also don't do any independent research. Cases have gotten thrown out where, say it's like a dispute about, we keep doing the traffic light. If a juror comes back and says that they went to the scene to try and figure out stuff, like that's a big no-no. That case could get thrown out. And it's the same thing, like Google, jurors can't go home and like Google what's an ankle injury case worth in New Jersey. That's a big no-no too. So a lot of times what it becomes is just a battle of the experts because an expert, uh, likely if it's an ankle injury, an orthopedic surgeon is going to present for our side and they'll talk about these injuries, the nature and extent. Again, not how much it's worth, but maybe how much a future surgery would cost. And the expert will paint a picture of, of what the prognosis is for that injury and what the kind of the future holds and then the defense will have an expert that will do almost always the opposite that will downplay the injury they'll say sometimes they might argue it wasn't even caused by the crash or the fall or whatever it may be they'll argue that it wasn't caused by the by the incident that we're here for and then they'll almost certainly argue that there's been an excellent recovery and I get that in almost every case Like defense experts will not even have reviewed the films. Like I got a report where they didn't even review the medical records. They reviewed nothing. And the defense doctor concluded that the client made an excellent recovery and he's got no long-term issues from it without looking at a single record, a single medical film or what. So a lot of times it comes down to the battle of these experts and jurors got to just decide who do they find more credible? Like how much weight do they give to what our guy said? How much weight do they give to what the defense guy said? And that's really... What these cases become? I think you talked about before, the evidence. Like, how do we get the evidence to the jury, and what does the does the defense try and keep the evidence out? And it's not so much that the defense tries to keep the evidence out; it's that they take the same evidence that we're looking at, and they they try and get the jury to reach a totally opposite conclusion. Like the, one of the classic examples of case Jerry and I tried. It was I think my first. It was my first trial when we we're here. This guy snapped his i think it was his femur He's, His femur got broken half got ran over by a car and it healed like this like the bone literally it's called a bayoneted fashion where the bone healed on top of the other bone and the defense expert obviously our expert said that's not good there's calcification there that's very painful it's going to cause some issues sure enough the kid was like 20 years old and he walked with a cane and the defense expert said perfect anatomical alignment. There's zero issues with this. This is perfect anatomical alignment, no issues. So we're looking at the exact same piece of evidence, bone that healed on top of itself instead of like this. And our conclusion is that's a poor recovery. This person's going to have issues. And the defense conclusion is that's an excellent recovery. This person's going to have no issues. So in terms of how a jury's going to come up and evaluate a case, all we can do is put our evidence out there. If there's a lot of times they call them specials, like if there's things like medical re- or medical bills that weren't paid, if there's wages that we can get in front of the jury, like those specials, those hard and fast numbers are, are great. But the big number and the, the important number, not that those aren't important, but the one that the jury's got to come up with on their own is for the pain, the suffering, the loss of enjoyment of life. And that really comes down to a battle of the experts, the witnesses and, and the attorneys and how the case is presented and defended.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. That's quite interesting. And I think that most people wouldn't realize that that's how it actually works and what's involved. That's how it actually works and that's what's involved. So thanks for sharing that. And my other question is what happens if, like, let's say a case does go to trial, right? Because they can't settle, but the client's seriously injured. Let's say they were in an automobile accident, they're seriously injured. And then in the interim, are they able to get any type of award or money to help with their, let's say, bills or medical bills and things like that? Or if it goes to trial, is it that they're just going to have to wait until the trial is finished and the outcome of the trial dictates what settlement they got or get?
1: Yeah, so it it depends on the type of case. Like if it's a workplace injury, say it's a construction case, and we do do a lot of those. If it's a construction injury case, almost always there's going to be a workers' compensation case going as well where they'll get a percentage of of their wages paid they'll get a percentage of the medical bills and stuff paid but even though that's happening the workers compensation carrier puts a lien on the case where if there's a settlement or if there's a jury verdict then the workers comp carrier gets paid back like two-thirds of what they paid out so it's it's nice that the a lot of times too but what we're talking about like i say it's nice but these the guys that get hurt in these construction cases that are getting workers compensation benefits or people that get get hurt in the workplace, period. Like that's, that's not going to pay the bills. That's not going to be putting the food on the table because they're only making a percentage of what they would have made otherwise. And a lot of times too, it's people that all they've ever done in their lives is work construction. And when you get hurt, like we're talking, like we've got cases where guys fall 40 feet off a scaffolding, they get electrocuted, horrible, horrible injuries. Like, and if all, all you've been doing for work is, is construction and you have these injuries, you're not going to be getting back to another, that type of work. And it's tough to find a field where you don't really necessarily have other skills or, or marketable skills to get into. So a lot of guys get put back on like light duty, but what's light duty if you're working, say as like a, a welder or something, or working like concrete, what's light duty? There's no such thing really as light duty in construction. So to answer your question is a lot of times people are just you got to wait. And that's why it's such a balance of like, we want to move these cases. But at the same time, we got to make sure we have the full treatment picture and that we're not leaving any potential damages on the table. But so, yeah, a lot of people, trials are very, it's all or nothing. Like there's not, okay, well, we got this person some money to hold them over and before the trial, like its it's really all or nothing stuff. That's why it's so high stakes. And there's just a lot of work and a lot of effort that goes into it. Because like the only thing standing between clients and zero dollars and as extreme as like potential being homeless or not being able to feed their families or what is like the job we did when we try these cases so it always cracks me up like i'll watch sports and stuff and it's like insurance company commercials and they're all like trying to be your friends and they're like whatever little logo they motto they have or what, literally like mascot and it's these guys are doing everything they can to get people who deserve to get money and it's i struggle with the word compensation because like compensation it's if i get a bonus it's wow cool i got my compensation like it's it's not like compensating these people it's like trying to make them whole it's it's not an award it's not it's just kind of trying to balance the scales but so you see these commercials for all these insurance companies and at the end of the day everything they do in these cases is designed to pay out either zero dollars, have a jury say the injured person gets zero dollars or have a jury come back with as little money as possible. So like the same way we're there fighting for our clients, like these insurance companies hide behind like all these, this tort reform stuff that we've talked about. And they've done such a good job of getting jurors already kind of thinking that everyone who files a lawsuit is just out to make a quick buck when it's like, I'm telling you, like I have never had a client that would trade the injury for the money. I just never have the best jury verdicts we've ever gotten, like the best settlements I've ever had, that client would never take that money in exchange for the injuries that they've had and what they've been through. So, you know, if people get money before the jury decides the case, typically no. And if it's even with workers' comp, it's not a lot of money. You're never going to get like fair value and full value from even a workers' comp case. So almost always there's there's not going to be anything between the trial and, and the person having gotten hurt.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that sometimes too, these trials and coming to an agreement and a settlement, it can take years. And I think that people don't understand why it takes that long. Maybe can shed a little bit light on what really happens. There's so many things that have to be done that it's that's normal. That's not like really abnormal for it to take sometimes a long time, especially if it's a more complicated trial maybe you can shed a little bit of light on that to educate the audience because I think, because they're not practicing law and they don't understand how everything works, it'd be great for them to have a little bit more understanding on that part.
1: So kind of from the time a crash or an incident or whatever it is is happens, the clock starts to run on, on certain timelines. And the biggest, biggest one is that, say a crash happens November 20th, 2023. There's two years in New Jersey to file a lawsuit And I'm just saying crash, like it's almost any personal injury action. You have a two year statute of limitations and statute of limitations means that's a time period to file the case. And the idea is that you don't want claims to become stale. Like you want people to know their their rights and not have something hanging out there in perpetuity where, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you can file a lawsuit. There's exceptions to that. Sexual abuse cases are a big exception for an obvious reason where that's a much longer statute of limitations, but generally personal injury, it's, it's two years. So the idea becomes because it's a balance between moving the case, getting to a jury, getting a verdict and all that, and also making sure that we know what the full picture is with the damages, because you don't get to come back and do it again. So say someone gets in a crash, like, I'll use the example, like the neck, say their neck's bothering them. It might start out, they might see their primary care physician, go see a chiropractor, say that takes two months, they do two months of chiropractic, and then it's not getting better. So then they get referred to physical therapy or pain management. And then say they end up getting an injection six months down the road. And then that doesn't help. And then they get another injection three months later, we're at, we're now at nine months out from the crash. And if we had just gone and filed that case right away, we probably wouldn't have a lot of that, that treatment in there. And then if the person's still treating, say they, they graduate to so the injection is not working, they need a surgery. If we've moved too quickly, that surgery, it's gonna be really difficult to make it part of the case. So it's a balance between giving enough time for the treatment to, to happen. And then there's also just a lot of just investigation and work that goes into these files. Like I'm using the example of a car crash, which is about almost always as, as simple as it would get in terms of like what happened. Like you'll get a police report if it's a rear end hit, it's rare that liability is gonna be an issue. Although more and more I'm seeing people say things like, my foot got stuck on a, the car mat or the thing accelerated and I was breaking. Just people giving excuses, which is kind of disheartening, but it just is what it is. So as, as simple as something simple as that, there's still a process then of getting like the insurance file, getting the property damage photos, stuff that all takes time. It's not like you send a letter, you make a phone call and you have this stuff like right away. It's like you send an email to a staff member. A staff member reaches out, does a letter, you sign the letter, letter goes out, it's a few weeks before you get that. Like it's just everything is just a process. So even with that two-year statute of limitations, like that time goes quick. And then from the time that we file the case, there's a lot that's in our control and there's a lot that's not in our control. Experts are a huge part of any case, like getting a client in to see an expert. Like there's guys that are scheduling, experts that are scheduling like over a year out. And and there's not a ton of people that do personal injury cases. There's not a lot of doctors that will testify. So it's not like we can just use a treating doctor. So balance between getting all the records in, balance between getting our client to the right expert. And then even when the case is all done, because we can move our file and then the the defense, like the insurance company's attorney on the other side, like they need to get stuff too to defend the case. So if they don't have their expert, the case is going to get pushed out. If they want to take a deposition or something that, someone's testimony and they haven't scheduled it, they can make an application with the court to extend it out. So it's, you got two sides trying to prep their case and get everything they need. You've got a client that's still treating oftentimes that you want to make sure everything's in there. And then the judicial system itself is like still, I know we're like over three years later from COVID, but there's still just such a backlog of cases that didn't get tried for like almost two years where I've got cases that are like five or six years old just waiting for a judge. So it's a balance then of even when the parties then are ready, it's like scheduling, are the experts ready to come testify? Are the witnesses that you need lined up? Can they come testify? And then is there a judge available? And even if there is, then sometimes what happens is say, I have a trial somewhere else that's older, or defense has a trial at somewhere else that's older. Then you get put back in the, in the cycle. It, it just adds up. Like, wow. it, and, and you're doing this on, hundreds of files it's not like you've got one case like if you'd work every case like it's your only file that'd be great but it's whack-a-mole of this file's hot this file's hot it's just really a lot of balancing so even when you're ready like another case that might be listed for trial and then that case doesn't go so it's just there's so much that goes into into moving cases forward like yeah. I, i've written out over the years like a linear progression of how these files go and it is It's never an A to Z thing. It's like A to A1 to A3 to A4 back to B, B to 1. Like it's just all over the map.
0: Thanks. It's a complicated process. And I think you shedding light on on the whole matter, I think that's great because now the audience understands why it can take time because it isn't just ABC, it's done. And there's so many different parties involved and people and things that have to be scheduled. And because of also the courts being backlogged, that makes sense. So thank you so much for sharing that. All right, so Jerry actually just popped back in, and we're going to get Jerry's perspective on how verdicts and awards are determined in New Jersey and see what he has to say about the matter, because I know he's worked on lots of different trials in New Jersey. So maybe we could shed some light on that for the audience.
2: Yeah, so basically, in a civil case, essentially what we're doing is we're trying to make up for the harms and losses that that the plaintiff has suffered. So if a kid's playing stickball, do, I didn't know if kids play stickball anymore, but <laughs> stickball is mm-hmm. a game where you'd play, it's like baseball, and then you swing a bat, like a wooden broomstick or something, and the kids play, and then they go and they hit the ball and it breaks the neighbor's window. Shouldn't the neighbor be compensated for that? Shouldn't someone pay for the window? That kind of thing. Or just, just take a more serious situation where, I don't know, someone causes a fire. Let's say someone's negligent and they cause a fire and it burns someone's house down. Shouldn't the person that burned the the house down by their negligence pay for that? And if you didn't have a civil justice system, what would happen? Would the person go over there with a gun and put a gun up to their head and say, you better pay? So the idea with civil justice and juries is that it's civil. It's it's a civilized way to do it without violence to resolve disputes, to, to resolve problems where Someone has caused harm. So what we're trying to do at a trial when we represent a plaintiff is to basically get that burned house paid for, to get that broken window paid for. So in someone's life, they can get injured, personal injuries. If they're hit by a drunk driver or something, someone's minding their own business and gets slammed in the rear. Someone's working on a job site where the job site's not enforcing safety rules and gets, gets injured. What we're trying to do is make up for the harms and losses from that. So that's what this is about. And that's what we're trying to get the juries to do is to come up with a dollar amount that's fair compensation. And it depends on the case, how we do that and what we ask for. What the defendants typically do is they devalue the person. They devalue people. They devalue human values. They're more about like corporate values, like the bottom line is what generally we see that corporate America values. It doesn't necessarily value things like love and beauty, enjoyment of life, mobility, friendship, relationships, things like that, that we find they don't really value. So in a trial, they're going to devalue those things. When someone's injured and they can't work, they're going to try to demonize the person and say that they weren't worth much anyway, and they were a bad person. And Many times they won't come right out and say that they'll imply it with doctors and experts and make suggestions and kind of tap into the worst biases in people or the worst things that people will think. So that's the bottom line is what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people fair to make up for the harms and losses to get that broken window fixed, the broken window of someone's life fixed.
0: And what happens if there is a settlement and as attorneys, you guys think that is totally way off base of what the settlement should have been. Have you ever had that happen? And what what's the recourse on that?
2: Well, I mean, to get the kind of the, the language right, a settlement is where the parties agree we're going to resolve this by this amount. And then there's a jury verdict. The jury verdicts aren't ordinarily called settlements, but the cases can settle after a jury gives a verdict. But if the verdict is too low, you can try to appeal it. You can make a motion with the judge for a new trial, different things like that. And the defendants often will file motions if they think the verdict's too high or they want to try to get less money or they think they can get a more favorable ruling from a judge, they can ask a judge to to throw out a verdict. So if they think they have a favorable judge, they might try that. A lot of times they'll just keep trying to wear down the plaintiff and their lawyers by even if they get a good verdict is to appeal. In our situation if we get a good verdict we will fight really hard on appeal to do that we have never received a verdict that was appealed and didn't fight that hard and on appeal so we're not afraid to try cases and we're not afraid to take appeals where it's warranted
0: thank you and we were talking earlier before you came in we're also talking about the jury and how they go about determining the amount of the award right and of course, they're not allowed to Google anything. They're not allowed to research anything. So I almost feel like it's so important to get like a jury that is the right jury for that particular trial, because imagine if you get a jury that maybe all of them are unknowledgeable about having any idea on how to put a value on all these things. So like loss of, loss of wages and having to having to have surgery and all these things, I just can't imagine what would happen if there's a jury that, that just all, they're not very sophisticated in determining the right number based on the injuries, the evidence, everything that happened in terms of the plaintiff's life that's
2: injured. Yeah, that's why you, you want to pick a yeah. jury that you think will be able to appreciate those things. And that's why you want to hire, hire a good lawyer that knows how to do that. A case, some people ask, hey, what's my case worth? Or what's this case worth? Or what do you think the case is worth? Well, a lot of the value in a case determines on what lawyer you get. You get a lawyer that's not too experienced, doesn't have a good track record. Your case could be worth many times less than it could could be with a different lawyer. So you want a lawyer that's experienced in talking to juries and explaining to them the value of human life, the value of a happy life, the value of a mobile life, and there's a lot of technique to getting in medical bills and lost wages, past lost wages, future lost wages, future medical bills. There's a lot of technique, knowledge, um, legal know-how to get those things in. And then most importantly, there's a lot of techniques in talking to a jury about permanent life changes, about how you put a dollar amount on that to compensate for permanent life changes because dimple you're right what's all that worth and who do you do good? Do you go to, do you get a college degree in that kind of thing and how to award that? No, it's, it's ordinary people. It's.
0: Yeah. And we're talking about the value of money. Like what's, what might be a lot of money to one person may not be, may not be for the other person. So Mark and I were talking about that earlier on this episode because it's all what's someone's perception of an award and money. And it may be different from one person to one person, like someone, let's say who's more, White collar versus blue collar, I can see there being differences in the value of the dollar that they perceive as a lot of money because it's i I can just see that happening
2: yeah that that's true and but then again, the white collar juror might be more inclined to agree with the corporation, whereas the blue collar might be more inclined to support the working person or the middle class person. so it all. It, it all depends. Sometimes you can talk about, well, what's the minimum wage for pain. Some people are in pain and then they're going to be in pain the rest of their life. And then you can calculate out how many hours that is and how many days and ascribe a dollar amount to every hour and then multiply it out. There's different kind of techniques and things that you can do for that. But that's what years of training comes with as, as an attorney and experience and what works and what doesn't work. The justice system is not perfect. The juries do not get it right all the time by any means. And like I said, so much has to do with the judge, the lawyers, and these experts. And you get these defense experts that get up there, and just they'll just misrepresent things about what happened. And there's a lot of techniques we do to prevent that, whether it be sending a nurse to the exam with the defense doctor or videotaping it, or we're getting research on the defense doctor and showing how they say the same thing all the time and are paid millions of dollars by the defense industry on exposing those things to trial and knowing how to do it in a legally admissible way. So there's just so much that goes into it. You got to pick the right lawyers, the bottom line.
0: Yeah. And Mark and I were also talking about how there's so much involved and especially everything that has to be done that it can take a while to settle a trial. It can take a while because there's so many moving components, especially like how many people are involved arranging okay, when can the expert witness come? When is the judge available? All these things. So we thought it was a great idea to shed some light on that for our audience, because people sometimes I see they'll put on social media, oh, it took them that long to settle the case, da but they don't really know because they're not practicing law, right? So I think that only lawyers know what it really takes behind the scenes. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. And if you guys have questions, send them to questions at Share this out with your community. And we will see you on the next one. And there you have it, folks. Another episode of Jersey Justice Podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, it's time to hit that subscribe button on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify Podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review online. Share this podcast with your friends and become their legal hero. Dive into more episodes at jerseyjusticepodcast.com or clarklawnj.com and check out our show notes for more information. If you're navigating legal issues and need a guiding light or just a phone call away, Call us at one 841 8855 Again, 1-877-841-8855. Until next time, Jersey Justice Warriors, stay empowered and informed.